Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Good to be here. If you, if you want to, we can cover at some point later about exposure and overexposure and why I'm not on every podcast on the planet, but, uh, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah. While we're on that uh, topic, why not flesh it out just a little bit? What, uh, what's, what's the strategy there? Is it to not get stale or not get old or not get, because brand as a VC is something that, you know, as an angel, people all think about as an investor. How do you think about that? I think we, as people, when something becomes a list or top level, um, we spend all of our attention on them. We we push all of our energy into it, but then we I think tire very very quickly. And I and I had um, a person in my formative years in my early twenties who was having this conversation with me just at the point where I was starting to go on a bunch of podcasts. I had started my own blog at that. I actually started my own blog at that time. I was a CEO of a company, a startup at that time, and really trying to think about how I was supposed to build my brand. And had a really formative experience with that person who basically at that point in time was making whatever it was, $20, $30 million a picture, uh, was an A-list celebrity and was saying like, I should have done it this way. Because actually, now that I'm here and I look at all the other people, you only get five, six years like this for for 95% of people. And then you actually burn out really fast, not because of anything you do, but because at that level of the industry limelight, people then want to turn the page. Once that chapter is done, they want to go into the next phase. And so I, I, it is, it is deliberate. There's, it helps to feed my, me as well, which I'm relatively introverted. So at yeah. least this way, I also don't have to do this 15 times a week because I don't actually yeah. want to. So it, it's all, maybe it's self-serving, but, but it's also that I actually do, I do think I want to do this job for a long term. I'm not trying to do this for five or six years and cash out. Um, and I do want to have an influence on startups and the venture industry for a long time. And, and so I think this is a more sustainable model. I hope. Yeah. Let's, Dive into 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 that to motivations a little bit. I mean, we uh, a lot of people here are are angel investors. Some are thinking, do they want to be venture capitalists? Do they want to just you know keep angel investing uh, on the side? Do they maybe want to you know join a firm, start a firm? How do you sort of conceive of yourself as a venture capitalist and and sort of your goals with, with within sort of the, the the broader industry? Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad everybody. I mean, if if you're in this cohort uh, and you've joined this thing, then, then you're showing way more intentionality than I ever did. Um, so I kudos to you all for really trying to think through how you want to structure either investing part-time or full-time. I never wanted to be a venture capitalist. I didn't ever think about it, actually. I had made all of one angel investment, um, which was a disaster, uh, before becoming a VC. Uh, so it is not at all uh, the normal path. Um, I started my first company when I was 16, sold it when I was 18, started a second company right after that, and which I took public through a big roll-up weird thing in the in the in like by the age of 22 um my next company was the wall and died my next cap after that sold for a lot like as you if you get a pattern here it's like there's no pattern right like except that i think each startup is specific and unique uh i don't think there are that many patterns to these things although we can obviously have lessons that we can try and learn and i love the journey i love the chaos of it i love the energy of it um and so i always assumed i would just go start another company either as a founder or as an early employee, I don't really have this attachment. I don't really care about that, but, but with a really good team, doing a really good thing, a CEO twice and not CEO four times. And so uh, it was really Bijan, my partner at Spark, 
who um, we were really good friends. We've been friends for six or seven years and had said, hey, I look at how you lead teams. I look at how you lead people and communities. And uh, I think you would enjoy this job and maybe even be possibly good at it. Uh, to which I, my first response was, I'm skeptical. I don't think so, uh, frankly. Uh, I had just sold a company to Zynga and I was Zynga as a general manager. And then he kind of like explained to me, it's like that kind of like insightful thing where somebody actually really knows you and sees you. And so he really explained to me the parts of my personality that he thought would make me want to do this full time, long term. And I went and thought about it for like literally six months. I had three other VCs reach out during that time because I'd reached some, you know, X, Y quadrant on all of their spreadsheets that said like I had this much notoriety and this much success that I might make a good VC that you kind of like slot into. And so I spent six months going and talking to a bunch of different firms, thought about starting my own firm, talked to some LPs about starting a seed fund. And ultimately, after that whole process, uh, came all the way back around to Spark and joined. But honestly, you know, I joined originally as a venture partner. I didn't join as a general partner. I thought there was a 50-50 shot that I got one month in and like pulled the ripcord <laughs> and was going to leave and, and go start something. And, you know, it's been seven years now. So, uh, so far, ripcord intact. Uh, I'm sure you talked to a bunch of people who are you know, where you were seven years ago and, and navigate, you know, navigating whether they should, you know, join a firm versus start a firm ver and, you know, at times are different now, obviously, versus like, you know, keep doing the, the founder thing if, if they have bu the bug for that. Do Everybody gets a rolling fund. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you have any sort of non-obvious advice you give there besides like, hey, what, what does your gut say? Or like, how do you sort of advise your friends who are sort of navigating that, that space? Because some people here are, are, are doing so. I liken being a VC to being a mid-level manager at a really large conglomerate company. Uh, and I do that for two reasons. One, uh, take the shine off of the reputation that you apply to it and the ladder climbing that you apply to it. Like, screw all that. Because honestly, the truth is, like, also it kind of is at that altitude, right? If you're like a senior VP at Viacom or Procter & Gamble, then... Like the truth is you own no product specifically, right? And, and you, you're not a line manager. You're not a GM. You make no really direct decision. What you really have is budget control. Like if you're a senior VP of ICOM, you decide that $10 million goes over here or doesn't. And that's, the, that's about it. Uh, and you have to be very comfortable at, at operating at that altitude. And I think actually there's a reason why senior VPs and mid-level managers at large corporations are like the most maligned position in the entire organization and are talked such shit about. And it's because it's a really hard altitude to operate at. It's very, very easy to decide that you're going to be a megalomaniacal control freak who is going to use that budget control to make everybody's life miserable so they jump through hoops for you, which plenty of VCs do as well. Or you do the inverse where, you know, you already made your money. There's a reason you're an SVP at Viacom. And so, like, you're just a detached, completely unconnected, like, coasting to your retirement piece of nothing in the world that has no impact whatsoever, which is also, you know, a lot of VCs. I think being okay with being in that, in, operating at that altitude really every day of the week and getting joy out of that work is something that, frankly, I don't think many people are wired for. Uh, I, I think it's fine to do a little bit of the time. Everybody likes to mentor a little bit. I was mentoring it. At, you know, with a couple friends in my last startup before doing this and was enjoying it. But the real question is like, does that, is that okay to do every single day? Yeah. And that's really, everyone else will tell you about how much sales there is in the job and you gotta be okay with that and the extroverted energy and all, and the 
saying no, being so hard and all the rest of that stuff. Like, I, I think the truth is just that it's, it's not fully detached. It's not like public market investing and it's not fully attached. You're not in the company every single day. And that's, there's not a lot of things in life that feel like that. And so you got to be okay with that altitude. Yeah. That's, it's, I haven't heard that framework before. I, I, I think it's, I'm going to steal it and I'll credit you um, when, when, I, when I share it. It's a good one. I want to walk through sort of just your early evolution uh, as an investor. I tell this to every investor when they take the job. Don't do the thing where people tell you to wait six months and a year to write checks uh, so that you learn from the other people around you. No matter what, your first check is going to be a, a terrible disaster. In fact, your first couple checks are probably going to be terrible. So the important thing is like, at least my internalized lesson from that is like, just get them over with. Like you can't right. overlearn and you'll get this as a theme for me the whole time. Like, cause it's the advice I give a lot. You can't overlearn this, this job and, yeah. and angel investing. Or investing. My first investment, I'm not going to say what it is now because yeah. now it's like, I just shot all over it. And it's got, it's got, it already got aqua hired years ago. I think the, the key is you can't fall for false precision in this job. And there's just so many things that, no amount of analysis and no amount of spreadsheeting and no amount of testing is going to get you there. And so, you know, I think frameworks like um, like thinking in bets, if you read that book or, or thinking fast and slow, like it's that framework. It is not it's not math and it's not science. And um, the mistakes I've made uh, and those first two investments fall into that category. The mistakes I've made were really false precision where I thought I had cleverly figured something out about an industry that honestly, like who the hell knows. And, uh, and I think people that really struggle at this job are actually the folks that have like had the answer every other time in their life. Yeah. You know, they, they, they've, they've been the smartest person in the class every time in their life. And if there's a benefit, it's that I never have ever thought I was the smartest person in the class or even close. And so I generally try to get by by the wits of my pants than, than the like 10 times more research than the next person. And by the way, there are investments I've done where I found a piece of research that no other VC did and it helped us lead a deal. But it, I, I think that's the rarity. It's not the thing that happens the most, the most often. Can, can you share, and if you can't share the specifics, even share just like broadly, what, what's that, what, what is that like when you find a piece of research like, can you give um, if if you can't give the concrete example? Can you give a broader example? Like, what can people learn for? Like, how can other people do that? <laughs> like, what does it look like when you? When um, well, I'll give you the example that was that had just come in my head, and cool. then we can backtrack and maybe try to make sense out of it afterwards. But again, don't overfit the model. We the, the round we led in Postmates, which you know is it, it, selling now to Uber and will um, just about return the fund when on its own. When we did that deal, that thing had been passed a bunch of times over uh, at the time. Uh, even, you know, early round, 10 employees. And at that point in time, what everyone was obsessed with was that they churned their supply side every 90 days. Like it was a sieve. Like you got a Postmate on and they worked for 30 to 90 days and you lost them and you had to go through it again. And the CAC on the supply side was also super high. And by the way, I had heard this like three times from other investors before I even had a meeting with Fastly, right? Like it was this thing where it permeates around the valley. Like, oh, that's not going to work because of X, Y, or Z, right? Uh, enough so, by the way, that most people just didn't do their own fundamental research. They had the conversation. They asked two or three questions about how, you know, his vision, his mission, but they weren't really listening. And then you ask about a supply side CAC 
he gives an answer and you say, well, how are you going to make retention better on the supply side? And then Bastion didn't have great answers on how he was going to fix that. And so people would pass. What we dug into, what I dug into was like, okay, I'm just going to assume if he doesn't have good answers, it might not be movable. Let's just talk about the rest of the business. And let me see if I can get myself there elsewise, because the product itself was so ridiculously crazy awesome at the time. Right. Like this just, I press a button and suddenly like a smoothie shows up at my door in like 10 minutes. Like it's insane. What else? What just happened? And so I was like, I got to keep digging. And look, if I can never get there in the unit economics, maybe I just can't get there. What we found was that the supply side was like leaky bucket, but the demand side had retention that like no one ever churned. Like if you had used Postmates five times, never. And that was very much unlike most of the models for consumer e-commerce products, which were usually highly competitive. And so then I just started doing math on, well, okay, let's just assume that it, that, that side of the business, the demand side business, the CAC goes down a little bit. Or, or maybe we can get you to order two times more a month. Or a bunch, and then Bastion, what kind of ideas do you have on that side? And there, he was a font of ideas. There he had 25 ideas about the ways he was going to move those numbers. And so we had conviction and made the bet. You know, after we'd gotten through a really, you know, the first orientation I have to everything, which is, is it a 10x better product? What's out there in the market right now? Um, so we were already trying to find a way to invest, right? And then we just got worried about unit economics like everybody else. And then it turned out that that is exactly what played out. It turns out that today, guess what? Like they have really high driver side churn. <laughs> and they still have really high driver side churn seven years later. Um, but the the business is unit economic profitable, doing was doing quite well. And I mean, it was a freaking roller coaster of a, of a journey that happened. Yeah. The, um, of the first two companies that, that didn't work out, um, I'm curious if you've invested in this space uh, again since, since investing. And I, I think the, the broader question is, you know, USB, I guess, likes to say that they're really thesis driven. How much is your of your work is sort of bottoms up, you know, right founder, right opportunity versus like, hey, I'm really digging into uh, labor marketplaces and looking for the one that does it in this way. And, and yeah. how do you sort of divide? Your, how do you think about that? It's ironic because I think, in the 2000s, no two firms invested together more than USV and Source. But we have entirely different ways of looking at the markets. And, and they are first thesis market-based. Um, at best, market is three or four or five. I want to invest in 10x better products where the second related, where the founder's pitch resonates with that product. But sometimes you get this like founder pitches a really good thesis or idea about a problem. And then that doesn't actually quite connect with the product. It's amazing how, how much time people like, oh, I was really stimulated intellectually by the pitch you just made. And then also I used a product, but didn't, you know, did, <laughs> did, those, did one actually equal the other? Um, so that's second. Third, does the founder have a chip on his shoulder or her shoulder? Did, are they really have something to prove? Um, I've made several mistakes where it really came down to a founder that pretty satisfied at the end of the day, done pretty well and didn't do the hard things the company ultimately needed at some point. And then fourth, do I understand the founder's values? Fifth, is it hard for others? People talk about competitive barrier to entry or network effects or lots of other ways to talk about it. But I just, in my head, it's just like, would it be hard for others to do? Uh, and, and sometimes I just justify that in ways that have nothing to do with network effects, or nothing to do with the kind of normal, you know, HBS, B school crap about how it's hard for somebody else. Um, and then last is market. 
can the market and more, but more specifically, can the market grow over time? But I, I don't really care about market size. Um, and in fact, as a firm, Spark historically, if you look at our best exits, they've almost every single one has been uh, TAM expansion bets. Um, you know, there are other firms and other investors that are much better at building exactly the right TAM, and then from there boiling down exactly what percentage that company will take of that TAM. Like, that's just not us. Like, we are much more likely to take a higher risk bet on um, early VR uh, and market expansion or early self-driving cars and market expansion. Keep going. Like, literally almost all of them. There's very, very, very few exits at Sparkside that aren't market expansion stories. And um, I, that's not by – that actually took me to point that out to the team, to be honest. They hadn't quite realized it until I was trying to make sense of how we talk to ourselves to the world. Yeah. And um, the redoing of our brand the last time around about a year and a half in and kind of put together the like, these are actually the, because we we're just doing everything organically. And I was like, me as a new person coming in, it was like, you guys are doing something really, really special. Before I pitch you guys new ideas about how we should work, I should like not break the golden goose. Like I should figure out how this, how you guys actually work. And that was a big one was just understanding that mostly it's can market analysis. And so I, I, the long story short is like market is, next to last for me in terms of being able to size it. Now, there are situations where I talk to a founder and and you guys would talk to a founder and you're like, I think it's a small market and I also don't think it's a mass need. Like, you know, like I just can't get, like that happens all the time. So I don't want to say market is not a criteria, but it's a distant one because it's just really hard to measure. And, and really, really passionate consumers can grow a market that you could never model your way. Yeah. And is there a framework for assessing whether you know, it can get big enough versus, versus, versus not. And it, it, it maybe one of them, it seems is, uh, you know, is, is the need felt strong enough by, by a certain set of customers, but are there certain examples of, of spaces or companies that have felt it, but you've still passed cause you just, you just can't see it getting materially, you know, venture scale or. I would just say, um, I, I can't think of situations where I, I just not having the, uh, memory recall to a specific company right now that where I was like, no, I didn't like the market. But I can say, you know, the kind of overarching back to like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing point from earlier is like, I, I think if there's any piece of suggestion I would have, it's like, don't listen to what Nabil says or Michael Moritz says or whoever was here last week says, like, it's about finding out who you are. Like, I gave you my rankings, which which aren't actually that different from, you know, product people, you know, market different shit. Like, those are not new, unique, crazy things you've never heard about before as a criteria for investing. How I might rank them would be different than how you might rank them is yeah. really important. So for you, it's okay. Maybe market is first for you. Great. Um, that's your way of viewing the world. It works pretty, pretty well. Thesis-based investing works pretty well for Fred and USB. Like um, there's no, you know, it, I think the problem that people run into when they become investors is frankly that they listen to too much advice about how other people think about how they should be successful investors and spend less time thinking about their own view of the world and asking themselves if they were to, you know, take, so take those six criteria I just listed, forget using them in the same order that I did. Even if you take those criteria, how would you stack rank over them for yourself? And then just be true to yourself. Like that the best diversity of portfolio that you can have is you because you're, you have a unique view on the world. So, spend more time thinking about yourself than thinking about how you invest like Eric. Or somebody else. Yeah. I'm curious how you 
uh, invest in spaces and get smart on spaces that perhaps you are you are newer to or, or not an expert mm-hmm. in. And so maybe uh, all stripes, maybe you were an expert in before. Could, could be one example, of sort of the, the 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 biotech space. You know, you, you've done stuff at different frontier markets. H- how do you think about? And maybe all stripes is an example, or maybe there's another example of like how you sort of get smart on a space and really evaluate something that is that is you know a, a newer market to you personally, and how you get comfortable um, there. In absence of being the customer and being in love with it, you need to internalize and find customers where they are just over the moon uh, motivated. And so I use that as the first proxy. And then you're just looking at, and then I just look at that. Like, you know, for context, all stripes works in rare diseases, um, diseases that are really, really long tail. You know, sometimes it's a disease that literally a hundred people in the world have. And the first and biggest product that they sell right now, put simply, is they go out and gather all the medical data from a, a panel of people who already have that disease and then they try and characterize the arc of that disease. So we know what breast cancer looks like and kind of what happens in phase one, phase two, phase three, but in fact, we have names for them. Um, for many of these rare diseases, no one even knows what's supposed to happen in a second. And, uh, and so how are you supposed to then develop a drug to cure it and then go talk to the government to say, this cures it. We have an A panel and we have a control and this thing works 10 times better if we don't even have a basis of what, like, what the knowledge is, right? Um, and so in many ways, what they're doing is they're creating ground truth, the ground truth for a disease that has never existed before. And there's lots of people that have operated in this kind of like in, in rare disease and in, and in regular diseases that are about patient recruitment. And we know there are some big, large billion dollar companies that have been involved in patient recruitment for um, things like studies, later studies and so on and so forth. But no one's actually held on to ground truth. For me, that felt like a 10x better product to everything that was there in the market. And then when I talked to customers, they talked about the struggle that they've had doing this by hand. They talked about the um, years and years that had gone by where they'd never, you know, even if they established ground truth internally, that when they talk to the FDA, the FDA is uh, more likely to view it with some uh, trepidation because it came from them. And so uh, in a world where that particular market, uh, the best alternative to hiring all stripes is to do it internally. Uh, it meant that not only could you get the data better, you could visualize it better, you could, but actually just the nature of trying to import it to save a little bit of money would also hurt your standing with the FDA. And on, I don't know if that really answers your question. It's very organic. It's very specific. It's, you know, what it's not is I know what the tactile TV is for this particular market. And so your multiple, your series B is going to be this, this, or which I'm perfectly capable of doing. It's probably using more of the Zynga skills that I used to have and, and all the rest of that stuff. But I find that, especially in a market where everybody's running an angel fund and everybody's got a rolling fund and everybody's got a series A fund and everyone's got a series B fund, I find that's actually what's really missing is somebody who digs three layers deeper because it is becoming much more and more of an industry. And if it's becoming more of an industry, everything is getting much more mechanized. Uh, and so for me, my instinct when everything is getting mechanized is to run away from that. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, of evaluating cer- certain markets, uh, Bra- uh, I'd like you to ask your question if you're open to it. Sure. Hi, Nabil. You're one of the few people that have invested in hardware, particularly consumer hardware. You know, mm-hmm. I've done three of these and at those early phases, there's... There's concept risk already, but you haven't made the thing yet. There's all this market and execution risk ahead. Like how, you know, could you say a little bit more about how you assess those? For better or worse, I'm still investing in building hardware companies. So (laughs) I'm curious, 
you know, how your thinking has evolved, you know, because you've done a few of these, you've seen good ones and bad ones, but those proof yeah. points so far up front are never that obvious. Yeah, and we've got a pretty good run on the next generation of hardware companies I feel really good about right now, actually. We're, we're investors in a company called Owl Labs, which makes this 360-degree webcam. It's which an you awesome imagine, product. Awesome product, and is flying off the shelves right now during COVID. It's an, they're going to have an insane year. Could go public next year. Like crazy. We're an investor in this company, um, Remarkable, uh, that makes this e-ink tablet, which is also a ridiculously good product that we chased down in the middle of Europe um, and took like nine months to get that deal done. Um, so we still, I, I say all that just to say, like, we, we still really believe in hardware. It is certainly the double black diamond of startups. And, and so I, I, I think, but you know, it's a, this is a good example. I, I'll try and come back and answer this question directly. But one thing I want to pick up on when I want to talk about hardware startups is, is the notion of competition. And I think for a lot of people, they look at hardware and they say, look, you're just shipping a device. Anyone can make that in China. Where's your network effects pass? And it's not really about the money in, it's about the barrier to entry. Um, I, I, I fundamentally think, and I, and I know you'll head nod to this, but like, because so I'm preaching the choir here, but like, it's a good example of why I try and keep a looser framework of like, how hard is this for somebody else to do versus yeah. some specific methodology? Because the truth is, in order for a hardware company to work, you need a hardware team and a software team and an engineering team and a design team. That culture all works together. And that is incredibly hard because almost every lesson we have in the Valley about how to build a successful business is predicated on a very specific function, a very specific part of that company leading the culture. This is an engineering driven culture. This is a product uh, manager driven culture. This is a sales driven culture. And in order for a hardware company to work, all of those things need to be played like a symphony in very careful balance. And I think honestly, that more than anything else is why there are so few hardware companies at scale. Uh, and why we don't see, you know, the next Apple every single two years. I think it's phenomenally hard. And so I look for, honestly, Brad, like you look for 10x better products. But then I, I with those companies, I end up spending a lot of time with the culture and really trying to understand how those different parts of the culture stay in balance. Doesn't mean we get it right all the time, but that's where my focus and energy is on. Uh, I, I, and, um, and, and usually it's a pretty easy pass uh, in hardware companies once you get into a conversation about how they're balancing their do you recommend, well, no one recommends you generally invest in hardware, but like, you know, what advice should angels take from this? What lessons should we take from it? Because they're pretty capital intensive, right? Like if they scale, great, but they're, is this an angel? Capital intensive, like who, like who has a shortage of capital right now in the market? Yeah. Like this is the best time ever in history to build a capital intensive company. There's never been a better time ever in the history of venture capital to build a capital intensive company. As someone who goes around for consumer hardware is like the common understanding for angels is, listen, there's no way anyone's going to fund a consumer <laughs> hardware company at the VC level. So best not to waste your money over here because you're never going to make it to an A. Yeah, I, look, I, look, I, I, the last venture round I raised, I, first of all, I, I started a hardware company. I know. So I certainly have been in a bunch of those rooms where they were laughing me out of the room. And then I was the idiot who after that started a games company where 90% of VCs, like, we don't invest in games. That's a content bet. And then I went around and, and tried to raise money, raise venture for both of them. So I, I, I get the pain of it. Um, and maybe I'm just, why, as you can tell, like, maybe I'm just wired in a situation where, like, I don't really care what the market is doing. And, in fact, I get enthusiastic about running away from the market. It makes my whole <laughs> life a lot harder. But, look, startups are, I mean, this is my particular view, which is not the view of, most investors, and I'm not sure is really a repeatable view. So that's my caveat, caveat, caveat. 
we're in the business of exceptions. Like the, the, what we're asking for a startup to be, the default state for a startup is to, and what we're asking for is to make an exceptional company. And so how many rules are we really trying to set up to try and invest in exceptional? It's ridiculous. And in fact, you know, that if there's anything that I can hopefully impart on the venture capital community and, and investing community and startups in general is to just treat it all like clay. Like none of the, there is no 10 commandments for how this shit is run. Uh, and in fact, that's the entire way this all works is that we keep reinventing ourselves. So in the case of hardware startups, I think it's a just, it's about making some investor believe that there's a reason that you're the reason they should make it. And there's lots of different ways to do that. But if you look, and I'm not saying it'll be easy, but it's starting from that. I think the problem that people that are outside of the norm, so games companies is an example too, but uh, hardware companies, the problem that they often run into in fundraising is that they try to make themselves look more like a SaaS startup yeah. so that somebody will invest in them. They go, look at those decks. They're like, oh, where's our subscription revenue? And by the way, this is exactly counter to what some hardware incubators will tell you to do, by the way. There are yeah. hardware incubators that are predicated on you don't focus on the hardware. You only talk about the subscription where you only invest in subscription hardware companies. Um, and I'm on the total under the other spectrum. Not that there aren't service revenues are good. Sure. Software revenue is good. But like if you don't embrace what's weird and screwed up about your company, then I, I you're just walking yourselves into a situation where that investor, you may sound or rhyme a little bit with a SaaS company. They just saw a SaaS company 15 minutes ago. If they wanted to invest in a SaaS company, they could have just done that. Like you have to talk about why you're different. And, and I, I think actually most founders get the, exactly the wrong advice. And so they shape their pitches exactly the wrong way. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's helpful. I actually wanted to get into, in, 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 go into Discord and, and how you sort of viewed gaming more broadly. Um, Jonathan, would you, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, I would. Thanks so much, Eric. Uh, and thank you, Nabil, for, for the talk. I um, really appreciate uh, <laughs> what you've shared. Um, so for, first of all, actually, I, I have to return to the Postmates thing for just a moment. I, I lead the shopper uh, product team at Instacart. And so I spent many years uh, answering very or attempting to answer very You know exactly that grind. <laughs> about about shopper churn and acquisition costs so i hear you on that one and the answer is yeah they just churn because they're contract um uh anyway though the the question uh that that i had is about discord so discord uh um i i run a discord community really uh enjoy the product and and have seen it cross the threshold from from sort of a, a gaming community product to now all kinds of online communities. Um, there's clearly, I think right now, a huge um, uh, growth in online communities that seems to be possibly COVID related and possibly part of broader trends. Would love to understand as a board member, how you're thinking about um, you know, your learnings around online communities and where you think they're going in the next few years. Well, the first thing I'd say is that I've spent the last six to nine months coming to a realization that I need to be talking more about online communities and thinking about them more in my investing that, you know, we, we do this thing where we make, we make a handful of investments without, and then we look back in arrears because we keep getting asked and we say, well, this is my philosophy for investing. And we make some sense out of it. Eric, you're shocked, you know, nodding your head in, uh, in agreement. I, 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 and I, and I do that to a certain extent. And, I, and a lot of what I talk about, if you read on the internet right now, my, my proverbial bios and LinkedIn, there's a lot of stuff on there. that's like about, um, product-oriented investing and uh, the line between uh, design and engineering and how they come together and so on and so forth. 
I think I think one thing I've realized over the last nine months, like missing in my own dialogue, is how much communities matter. Uh, like I did, I did a bad job of it. Even talk when I just talked about all stripes. A lot of my motivation on all stripes was actually around the communities around rare disease that were formed, um, and it was a big part of what excited me. But it's not built into the way I talk about the investments I'm making right now. But probably eighty percent plus the online community side, and actually the first two startups I ever started, including first thing I did back in high school, um, were on basically online communities. So that's to say, I, I'm really motivated by them. I think we've moved forward. You know, it's not that online communities haven't existed a bunch before. I think what happens is a little bit like the Instacart example. It's a perfect example, Jonathan, which is like what COVID did was not just grow Instacart. That's not the important thing that it did. What it did is it, it pierced the bubble into late adopters, into a whole new cohort of potential consumers for Instacart that may have not even thought about it for another decade. But they, you know, if I'm a 70-year-old person who doesn't really use the internet that much, except for to complain about politics on Facebook, I, I now really can't go out. I can't go to a grocery store. And so I'm going to use this. And, and that's what we've seen with online communities over the last six, seven months. And I put it that way to say, this is not a short-term blip, right? It's not a thing where it's like, oh, we got 20% growth month over month for a few months. And then COVID went away and it went away. Online communities are one of those things where now you've pierced a whole set of cohorts that now think about particularly online gaming and, and, and getting social interaction online through house party and discord. And it's not just that it grew 10%, it's that it pierced different demographic groups that will now grow virally inside of those groups over the next couple of years, right? So the Instacart example is it's the 70-year-old who's now telling another 70-year-old, no, you got to go do this thing, uh, who may have not come on board for another decade. And in the case of Discord, it's a bunch of people who maybe were shy to be involved in gaming communities, or maybe were shy to interact in this way online, in these small server groups online, where they're constantly online in these audio channels and just talking for hours and hours and hours in these audio channels. Um, that's the big thing people miss about Discord. If you come from business and you look at it, you think of it like you think of Slack. Because um, it looks a little bit like Slack, but the usage patterns are almost entirely different. People keep their audio channels open for hours and hours. Um, that's the real usage pattern. So I, I'm very long on it. Um, and 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 just to kind of loop, if I want to loop back earlier for a second, you know, to the criteria I used earlier, right? When we invested in Discord, though, it, it's the same model, right? Like amazing product. The the pitch uh, of the product, which was that. People using Skype and TeamSpeak had these problems. It resonated with the product solution. So the, the, the pitch resonated. Founder had a chip on her shoulder. Jason had sold a company for 100 million bucks before as we had an exit. So you could get worried like, oh, you know, one, may, if you like it, maybe he's a vaunted founder. So now you're going to invest in the resume. He's had an exit already. But the other side of it is like, he's got money. He doesn't have to go do this again. Right? Um, but what you felt when you talked to Jason was a massive chip on his shoulder that he had sold too early that the acquiring company was a shit show culturally uh, and that he didn't want to work at and that had killed open thing. And uh, you could feel that in him when you talked to him about him and that he had really, really strong values about how he wanted to fix that culture going forward to go back to the values. Comment. But is it hard for others? That was for me, it's fifth priority. So it, I'm not sure how hard it was for others. Slack, we had a conversation. We were an investor already in Slack. So I actually had to have a conversation with, with Stuart uh, and say, you know, are you going to do this? He said, I'm not going to any consumer. And then lastly was market out of that six, right? Uh, and, and and market, who knows? Like, is it just for gamers? Is it ever going to grow? You know, the assumption was if it works and we have this really passionate user base, it will grow. Don't overthink. And this was probably, you know, it was three months after. Discord. So I, I think what I've learned 
from Discord, if I'm trying to wrap all that up, it's like most of that stuff all played out the way I said it played out, actually, in, at least in terms of priority. All the specifics was wrong, you know, and, and false precision is that, you know, we thought they were going to monetize through a game store, that they were going to sell games and kill Steam. That was the idea. And that was the idea for four, three years consistently through, you know, their next two fundraises. They're valued at, you know, when they raised it a billion, it was we're monetizing, you know, lots of growth investors out there wrote wonderful little internal analyst notes about about the ARPU of Steam per user and how they're going to monetize through uh, selling games. Uh, and they they launched that game store two years ago, a year and a half ago, and they had it live for four months, three months. There's a piece about it on our website where he talks about it briefly, but like they killed it. It sucked. It was bad. It didn't work. Uh, and they killed it. And so, you know, it's like you want to get the sketch right, knowing the particulars are going to be wrong. Why, why is gaming so, so pioneering as it relates to new business models? Right. You know, there was this idea that there would be Twitch for X because Twitch worked for gaming. There's I did, you know, Discord for X that like why are so many business models pioneered uh, in, in, in gaming and all the like? You know, and are, is it something unique to gaming that yes, the, yeah, be, be, be the yeah. start of it, but then others will copy, or it will will Twitch only work for gaming and not really for other the, the reason the reason that everything starts in gaming is um is also why it's a really bad area to invest in, and you shouldn't do it, but it still makes up about a third of the boards I'm on. Uh, it, okay. it uh, because I'm bad at this. Uh, so it, gaming is the reason new things happen in gaming is because they freaking have to. Right. The, the reason it, that people innovate in gaming on on graphics, on user acquisition, on user understanding, on retention, on monetization and then on user behavior, ultimately, is because it's the most it's the reddest ocean of red oceans. Right. Like every single category. So many people do gaming because they love building games and, and they build it in uneconomic ways. And there's just enough people operating completely uneconomically that every single idea has been has been churned over. Right. So. Mobile comes out and, you know, Apple releases uh, the iPhone before they've even released the, the, the App Store. There's 25 games that people are sideloading onto that uh, onto that phone way before it's even economic to be doing so. And so what that means is by the time there's an App Store, there's already 20 companies that are out there. And that means that already that that problem space has been has been looked through. And what it means is if you're coming into the first generation of the App Store on the iPhone, it means that you can't just release a game. You got to look at the 20 others and you got to think about a new way to do UA and a new way to, and so like you're just constantly on the edge because it's that competitive. And it's what it's what makes it that that much harder. There are other reasons why, but but I think that's the biggest reason why they innovate, because they have to. That's what makes it also like, yeah, it, it makes it it makes it fascinating as somebody who likes being on the edge of the new. It's one of the reasons I love gaming, is because you're just always in the new frontier. Uh, it makes it really hard to run a game. I, I don't know that I would want to be a gaming CEO again in an economic way, but in terms of investing, it's really wonderful. It also dovetails back to the earlier comment. Like, so it's it kind of like overlaps two amazing interests for me. One, it's at the forefront of technology, user behavior, design. It's like you because you got to be going for blue field or else you know. And and ninety nine percent of people I talk to in gaming, by the way, they don't present this. They present the slight reskin. But but every once in a while you get people who are like forced to really be on the edge, and that's amazing. And then the second is like it's how online communities are built, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, totally. 
Do you think there will be a, 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 a Twitch for X that, that's like beauty or something else that really works? I mean, when you look at sort of innovations that happen in mm-hmm. gaming, do you try to transpose them into into other fields or is that, you know, unlike? I, I, I do. It's probably one of those areas where I, I suffer from over intellectualization because um, I can't help myself. I think the key thing, the interesting thing about about Twitch for X, if I'm just going to try and take that one piece and I'll try not to over belabor this, um, but. When you're doing a craft, when you're drawing, making a thing in the world, which is what you're doing when you're Twitch for X or live doing an activity, a creative activity. The problem with most of those activities is that nobody designed them to be interesting moment to moment. Nobody designed the act of drawing and said, (laughs) you know, God didn't design the act of drawing and say, every moment of drawing will have some amount of compelling interest for you to watch while you're doing the thing so that I get both outputs. It is satisfying for me to watch somebody exhibit their skills, right? When I draw something, I do get this trigger that is like, are they good at this thing? And and you do get that with a creative outlook, drawing, working in Photoshop or something like that. But what you don't get is that moment-to-moment feedback. And what gaming, like a sport, like, you know, basketball has been constructed. It was constructed a long time ago. But basketball is constructed to be interesting both to watch and to exhibit this the kind of creativity and skill of a player playing that. And games have uh, have both of those things. And so if you want if you want to find another category which is going to work in that way, my precept is that it needs to exhibit both of those things. It needs to be interesting moment moment to moment, probably because somebody actually rethought it. So if it was Twitch for something, it's probably because somebody rethought or is redoing. They didn't just like point a camera at drawing. They said, here's how we're going to do drawing in a new and interesting way that has never existed before, but will create moment to moment interaction that is compelling. And then we're combining that with being able to see somebody really show their inner creativity, yeah. which is the other part. Of that. Uh, how about the anti-portfolio the other way where like companies that you passed on that obviously they're ones that passed on that worked out that still didn't hit your criteria that you probably would have done the same thing. But like, what are, what are mistakes on ones that you could have invested in, should have invested in, but for whatever reason, uh, didn't and any commonalities or, or lessons learned from anti-portfolio? Yeah. There's companies that I just, I don't really want to invest in every company, right? I, I, I would I would not sit on more than nine boards right. at a time because I just don't think I would do a good, I would be able to invest the time and energy. That's the altitude to use your earlier framework. It, it, companies that I passed on, John Lilly brought Figma to me uh, like three times. And Dylan is the person that most feels to me like Jason Citron. It's just not... He's still the person that feels like Jason. I just introduced him to him. <laughs> uh, I, uh, uh, that was dumb. It was, it, it was, um, I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't know that I have great lessons about, about why I didn't do that deal. I talked myself out of it. I talked myself out of it because of valuation versus traction, which is, if you noticed earlier, was none of the things yeah. on the list. So what the hell was I doing? And that has to matter for check size to a certain extent. Like, you know, we we operate have a five hundred million dollar early stage fund and a billion dollar growth fund, about five billion dollars uh, total. Um, and so there's check sizes that are that are a stretch to write. Um, yeah. You can write a twenty million dollar check in the early. Well, actually, I just did. Well, anyway, exceptions are made to be rules are made to be broken, as I said earlier. Uh, but like, I, I I but I still could have split around with somebody. Like if I had gone back to John and said, let's split the next round instead of having. There are ways I would have constructed winning that deal, and John was trying to tee us up to win it. Because uh, we he thought I'd be a good investor. Uh, that's the one that stings. I obviously 
that the memory recall there was quick. So you can tell I thought about that. Yeah, that, that, that one stinks for me too. And a much smaller way, but I launched it on product hunt um, when oh. it first launched. And I asked him if I could invest and we, we were friends um, uh, and we were both part of the same scout program. And he was like, I'm full. And I was like, okay, but I should have just like, <laughs> come on, 5k. Just ask again. Just ask one more time, man. <laughs> exactly. Just wear him down. Yeah. Some people it works, <laughs> but the, uh, I appreciate that. I mean, at a high level, like what percentage of your deals? Cause I remember this guy from Bessemer, I think his name is Jeremy Levine or something. He, he was like, in an interview with Sarah Lacey, like a decade ago, he was like, because I'm not a big shot, famous VC, or he wasn't at the time or whatever. He's like, I need to search for deals that uh, other people aren't doing or, or something like, I, by the way. So I'm glad you mentioned Jeremy. That's so great. Like I ascribe to Jeremy Levine uh, way of investing, which is like that guy's not, uh, he's known, but his, yeah. his, how known he is in the industry versus how successful he is, is completely asymmetric. Right. And that is, very much by design. You know, he wants to be known by the people that need to know him. One last question. This, this may sound technical, but uh, Keith, uh, both Sarah and Keith were, were, were previous guests. And, and Keith, one thing he said is um, that the biggest passes he, he made um, or his biggest anti-portfolio is actually people who he just didn't even take a meeting with. And so he's mm-hmm. been like self-reflecting on, you know, how to know when to take a meeting and what, you know, false positive, false negative. Have have you picked up any frameworks or like obviously you know there are more meetings of compelling companies that than, than you can take. How, how have you sort of tuned your litmus test for? Whether- we should have spent like twenty minutes on this because especially as as this angel is, you should do this with whoever whatever wonderful amazing human you have coming in next, Eric. You should make this the first question and you should spend twenty minutes on it because honestly, as an angel or somebody doing this part time, this is probably question number one. Yeah. Uh, is how do you filter? Uh, it's a part-time gig I'm doing on the side. Uh, it's tough. I, th- I do not agree. Uh, that's At least that's not true for me. Uh, I can certainly pick off a couple of folks. You can't do this for six, seven years and not pick off a couple of folks. But, but no, mostly I've seen, I've seen everything. So I guess the question you could ask is, what is it different? How is that different for between me and Keith, right? Uh, wh- why do we respond differently to that criteria? Yeah. Uh, I think it might be that I can, for my criteria of investing, uh, it is easier for me to read whether it's going to be something I'm interested in uh, from a quick email and a website search. Uh, And and that doesn't mean I don't miss things, but it just means that for my particular criteria, like for instance, where I spark in general and me in particular, I'm bad at pre-product stuff. Like I have a really hard time at pre-product stuff. And, uh, and that sucks sometimes, especially when it's somebody who's in my network, who I know and trust and love. And like, I kind of want to get there, but like, I also kind of know me and, and that doesn't mean we won't do it again. Rules are made to be broken, but, but that's a good example. And there's a bunch of them. So I, I, I just probably means my, for my criteria, I can look at the product really quickly in two seconds before I take the meeting and just get that visceral feeling. Does this feel crazy and different and 10 X better? And then I should probably spend at least a half an hour phone call to find out whether their pitch also meets the problem set. We'll keep digging in. Yeah. Whereas, I, 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 you know, yeah, I think that's actually probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I, I want to say just, I know we're like, when I say like a bunch of this stuff is unknowable. Uh, when, when I say like the key is knowing what's false precision, some people react to that a, a, and then say back, well, then if this is all unknowable and you keep 
waving your hands and saying like, no one really knows what the truth is, dude. Like, you know, I'm just going to invest in good people then is, is often like that can be the takeaway. And I, I just want to make sure before we leave here that, that, that that's not the takeaway. Or at the very least, if you're leaving with, I'm just going to invest in people, understand what you mean by I'm going to invest in people. Because often I'm going to invest in people just means the person who gives the best presentation because all you had was a half an hour and, and you read the presentation. And so what does that get you? Well, that gets you a bunch of fucking charlatans. And so like, you know, so the, the other way to get you the best people is to say, well, they did the thing at Dropbox or Uber. And it's like, okay, great. Well, now you're just investing in resumes, not people. And so just, you know, we all have juristics that we're going to get comfortable with and all of them are loose and rough. But just, I would like, just ask the second level question, right? Like we, when we invested, we were just investing in people and resumes. Like I invested in a company called Sonder at the Series A. And, you know, that guy was not an Uber person or a Stanford person, random Canadian with a Montreal-based startup at the time that was called Flatbook of all things that had never had a full-time job anywhere in his whole life and had never managed a human and, and was managing at that point like five or six people. So like, I don't think you get to invest in people and then do that deal. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know. Like all of these things are, I think, about asking, I think in many ways, we could do the same thing with product or like, they're about asking the second order bit question about what do you really mean? When you huh. That is a, uh, that's a great place to, to, to wrap. Uh, Nabil, you've been more than generous with your, with your time and your insights. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on. If we can give a round of applause for, for Nabil for, for, for coming on. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us today. Of course. I wish you all the best on your journey. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.